Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For many throughout the world, the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang are coming at a critical time for relations between the leadership of North Korea and the rest of the world. When news broke that North Korea would send a delegation to the Games and the women's hockey team would in fact be made up of players from both North and South Korea, there was a feeling of ice thawing and even hope. But if you look closer, it seems that most of that hope was coming from either organizers who were tied to the success of the Games or people who aren't even living in Korea. For the citizens throughout Korea, it was business as usual. There are still tales of families divided, borders illegally crossed, and a sense of superiority and inferiority between people trying to live together in freedom in South Korea. So is this display of unity something to celebrate, or are we just being fooled into ignoring the harsh realities of a peninsula that is still technically at war? Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Sam Borden as we talk about the difficult mix of Olympic harmony and reality. Now we present An Illusion of Unity by Sam Borden. An Illusion of Unity by Sam Borden Editor's Note Because some subjects have family remaining in North Korea, selected names have been changed and some identifying details withheld. It was small, as prisons go, just seven rooms. Seven bare rooms full of men who committed low-level crimes as defined by the North Korean government. Shoplifting, say or being heard singing a South Korean song. Kim Jin-sung was in for low-rent smuggling, and that should have been the end of it, really. Most North Koreans go to prison to die, from the beatings, or from the hard labor, or from the lack of medicine, or from starvation. And in the beginning, Kim Jin-sung was actually one of a few inmates responsible for helping with burials. By his estimate, between one and three inmates died every day he was in prison, and it was no problem that the prison had only four coffins. The prisoners were all so gaunt and emaciated by the time they died, you see, that fitting three bodies per casket was easy. So, once a week, Kim Jin-sung loaded the four coffins holding a dozen or so bodies onto a tractor. Then he drove the tractor to a nearby hill where the soil was dry and thin. He emptied the caskets and buried the corpses there, digging new holes even as human skulls and splintered bones and weathered skeletons of other dead prisoners came up at him through the grainy sand. Kim Jin-sung had spent 13 years in the North Korean military, working for the special unit that guarded the former supreme leader, Kim Jong-il. He lived in the leader's mansion and led a group of entertainers who performed for Kim Jong-il. They had a charming routine involving show ponies. Once he finished his required service, Kim Jun-sung returned to Haisan, his home city in the north of the country, and married his sweetheart. His wife gave birth to a boy. Kim Jun-sung worked as a day laborer and took training classes to become a teacher. Life was good enough. Only then his wife began coughing, and the coughing wouldn't stop and there was blood in her throat. She had tuberculosis. There was no help from the state-run hospitals. 
no medicine that Kim Jin-sung could afford. Desperate for money, he began bootlegging, hawking whatever he could find into the pervasive North Korean black market. Plants, shoes, copper, any contraband he could move from across the border in China and unload on the North Korean side. It was all he could do for his wife, he believed. He had no choice. But desperation is a poor quality in a criminal, and he was caught and arrested and put in a kawaso, or re-education camp, the one with the seven rooms and the four coffins. Every week, Kim Jin-sung drove the tractor to that burial hill, and every week Kim Jin-sung dug the shallow graves and wondered when the next one would be his. The Winter Olympics begin in two weeks in Pyeongchang, South Korea, and it is almost impossible to completely miss seeing a snippet or a nugget or a tweet from the President of the United States about what is supposedly happening on this peninsula in the Pacific Ocean. Taken together, those snippets and nuggets and tweets from the President of the United States amount to something like this. North Korea is a small, dank, isolated, authoritarian state led by a chubby, ruthless, possibly deranged man who ordered the executions of his uncle and half-brother, who hates America more than he hates the South who is obsessed with nuclear missiles as well as the might of his army, and who rules over a people that either blindly reveres him despite living in the most abject poverty or alternately wishes desperately to flee to South Korea, a country that is open, warm, technologically advanced, economically stable, and filled with citizens who welcome the refugees from the north as brothers and sisters who have finally come home. Where do the Olympics fit into this narrative? Hammered home by years of breathy speeches and saccharine television ads, the Olympics are, naturally, an important salve, a political lubricant that is larger than any conflict or history. The Olympic Games show us what the world could look like if we were all guided by the Olympic spirit of respect and understanding, IOC President Thomas Bach intoned recently. Just look. After much consternation and public posturing, the North Koreans, who have been petulant and persistent in firing test rockets over the past 12 months, announced this month that they will send a delegation to Pyeongchang. This was portrayed as significant news, if only because it is expected that North Korea's participation will make a safe and incident-free games more likely. Perhaps in an attempt to urge the North's participation, South Korea delayed its joint military exercises with the United States until after the Olympics, and there is real, actual political dialogue happening between the North and South now, instead of empty rhetoric. The two Koreas will even have a joint women's hockey team at the Games, and will walk together in the opening ceremony. The Olympics is more than just a global sporting event. Kim Cha-yul, the executive vice president of the local organizing committee, told me in an office at the committee's headquarters in Seoul last year, delivering the line with a lilt, as if it were from Scripture. The Olympics is the occasion where people put aside differences and come together to celebrate the greatest festival on earth. Wang Bo-young opened the door to her apartment in southwest Seoul and gave a sympathetic shiver of her shoulders. It was an uncommonly bitter November day and Wang Bo offered up warm tea. The walls of her apartment were covered with flowered wallpaper, and the space was small but immaculate. 
Wang Bo sat on a plain leather couch and slipped baby booties on the paws of her Maltese, a little dog named Pink, so the puppy's toenails would not click-clack on the laminate floor. Wang Bo grew up in Chongjin, which is tucked into the northeast corner of North Korea, hard by the East Sea. She had three siblings. Her parents were, relatively speaking, well-to-do, and when it became clear that she was talented at hockey even as a twelve-year-old, she became obsessed by the sport. Her mother would have preferred she play the violin. Resources in Chongjin were sparse. The rink was a flooded playground grass area, yet Wang Bo soon became part of the North Korean national team program. She was excited. But in 1997, when Wang Bo was 19, her father told her that the family was going to defect. A loyal party member in North Korea for much of his life, Wang Bo's father had learned snippets and snatches about life on the outside from television and news radio broadcasts that were designed to show South Korea as weak. He saw them differently. I want us to go because I want to make sure we live, Wang Bo's father told her, and her face fell. Wang Bo ran away, sprinting to an aunt's house nearby because she did not want to leave. Her aunt sent her back. The family of six, traveling in two groups of three, made it to China in November 1997. About a year and a half later, they arrived as refugees in South Korea. It did not take long for Wang Bo to find her way back to hockey, and in 2003, as part of the South Korean national team, Wang Bo played against her former North Korean teammates during the Asian Games. The North Korean players, her friends, some of whom she had roomed with as a member of North Korea's national team program, called her traitor and checked her so mercilessly she became woozy. During the handshake line after the game, each of the North Korean players let her hand fall as Wang Bo approached. I cried buckets, she said, and when I asked what she wished she could have said to her friends, she did not hesitate. I wanted to say, you are being cheated, she replied. I really wanted to shout out, you are all being cheated, and I did not betray the country. But I just walked out. Wangbo went on from that game against North Korea to become the face of women's hockey in South Korea, captaining the team and advocating publicly for better treatment of female athletes. She is now retired from the sport, but coaches children with disabilities and works as a referee. She has immersed herself fully into South Korean society and is planning a trip to Hawaii with her mother to celebrate the 20-year anniversary of their arrival in Seoul. I have no problem living in South Korea, she said. I pay to purchase my own car, and I put gas in it and drive around. I go everywhere I want to go. It is not inconvenient to live, and my life is not strange. No one stares at me. Because of these things, she said, I consider myself a South Korean person. Indeed. In North Korea, Wang Bo waited in line for her chance to take a cold shower. In North Korea, white rice was the equivalent of gold. In North Korea, she sewed together ripped pairs of underwear to make them last longer. In South Korea, her dog wears socks. Kim Jin-sung did not die in prison. After two years of incarceration, it was determined he was sufficiently educated about how wrong it was for him to try to make money to buy his wife's medicine, and he was released in 2007. He returned to his wife and child in Haisan, a border area nestled about 60 miles from Peiktu Mountain. 
which is a volcano that is half in North Korea and half in China. In Chinese, the mountain is called Changbaishan, which means ever white mountain. Its snow looks like clotted cream. The winter temperatures in Haisan are frigid, as low as minus nine degrees Fahrenheit with regularity. And Kim Jinsung felt the cold once he returned from prison. There was never enough food. There was never enough money. Roughly a year after Kim Jinsung got out of jail, his wife died. Their son, Kim Chulsung, was about three. Kim Jinsung was stunned. He did not know what to do, did not know how to make a life for himself and his son without his wife there. The child's grandparents, on his mother's side, made a home for the boy while Kim Jinsung reeled. As Kim Chulsung grew up, he began to resent Kim Jinsung and stopped calling him father or daddy. Once, during a visit, the boy threw a rock at Kim Jinsung and shouted, My mother is dead because of you. Kim Jinsung felt ashamed and turned away. He could not face his own boy. While in prison, Kim Jinsung had heard quiet chatter about South Korea. After his wife died, he tried to learn more. He thought of trying to escape, of stuffing whatever he could into a pack and crossing the Yalu River into China under the cover of night. He thought of running, come what may. He thought of starting over. In and around Seoul, where roughly half of the country's 50 million people live, North Korea's nuclear missile tests are like midnight police sirens in New York City. To those in hotel rooms, they are piercing alarms, jolting visitors upright in their beds. To those in apartments who go to bed beneath a cacophony every night, they are little more than white noise. For example, one day while I was in Seoul last year, the city woke to news that North Korea had launched a test missile during the night that had flown higher and longer than previous flights. This indicated, analysts said, that North Korea could reach the United States with a rocket. The test was seen as a significant development, a brazen affront to the global community. James Mattis, the United States Defense Secretary, said the test was a ballistic missile threat that endangers world peace, regional peace, and certainly the United States. My mother, who usually texts only once per day, texted me four or five times that morning alone, asking me to confirm repeatedly that I was okay and inquiring about the extent of the panic in the city. Except, there was no panic. Several of the people I interviewed that day were not even aware a test had occurred. During lunch in a popular and congested restaurant, television screens showed news reports about the launch, but there was no crowd gathered around the screen. No one's head swiveled to stare. There was no clamor. At first, that seemed strange. After all, Seoul is some 35 miles from the demilitarized zone, where there is enough North Korean artillery to devastate the southern capital within hours. But the truth is that Seoul has lived with that threat for decades, and anyone who sits beneath the sword of Damocles long enough will eventually just stop noticing. There is, however, a fascination with the daily lives of North Koreans. Recent estimates put the number of North Korean refugees in South Korea at just over 30,000, most of whom are scattered in a few neighborhoods on the outskirts of the capital. 
In 2005, there was actually a concerted effort in South Korea to begin referring to North Korean refugees as Saitaemen, which translates to residents in a new place. The push was designed to encourage the idea that North Korean refugees should feel as Wangbo does, to feel that this is their home. Despite that, the refugee-as-novelty element persists in the South, there are several reality TV programs starring refugees. One, which features many young female defectors, is called Now on My Way to Meet You, and is a sort of Q&A-slash-variety show that even has a global edition. It has been a strong ratings performer since 2011. Those shows feed the craving that many South Koreans have for information about regular life in the North. This hankering knows no bounds, either. In mid-November, for instance, Oh Chong Song, a North Korean soldier defected in a rare way, by crossing the demilitarized zone. To do so, Oh drove a military vehicle to the border and then ran across the line amid a hail of bullets from other North Korean soldiers. Oh was hit five times, but survived. He was found under a pile of leaves on the South Korean side. It was dramatic and harrowing but the most talked-about detail of the episode was that doctors performing surgery on O found his body riddled with parasitic worms, some as long as eleven inches. This was seen by many as the latest proof that human feces is still used as an inexpensive crop fertilizer in North Korea, an assertion the reality shows often highlight. Part of the allure to this sort of information, naturally, is that it is a spider crack through which to peer at a place shrouded in mystery. Only a fraction of South Koreans, or really the entire world's population, has spent any time in North Korea, which is so closed off it is known as the Hermit Kingdom. Even visitors see only slivers of life there, which further fuels the intrigue. Last spring, the South Korean women's soccer team went to Pyongyang for a 2018 Asian Cup qualifying match against North Korea. Pyongyang is something of a cipher. A showpiece city North Korea micromanages so tightly that people with disabilities are typically forced to move away, lest they be seen by outsiders as weak. That does not mean, however, that Pyongyang is in any way modern. Moon Mira, a player on the South Korean team, said the bus ride from the team's hotel to the stadium felt like time travel. There were few cars and no advertisements anywhere, no billboards for anything other than praise of the great leader. Bicycles looked ancient. In stores, antiquated phrases were used on labels instead of the modern anglicized versions common in the South. Apple juice was labeled in old-fashioned Korean as sweet water, Moon remembered. A long time ago, I watched TV with my mom and dad, and I was able to see brief scenes of the 80s and 90s, Moon said. It was similar to those. At the hotel, a handful of North Korean minders stood nearby as the South Korean players did stretching and calisthenics in the parking lot, making sure no one ventured beyond the agreed-upon area for warm-ups. The night before the game, Moon turned on the TV, but quickly shut it off after realizing the only programs were about Kim Jong-un. During the match, the stadium fell eerily silent, no booing at all, when South Korea scored in a 1-1 tie. But there was also no overt animosity from the spectators, 
No North Korean fans standing on the side of the road to yell at the South Korean team bus as it left the stadium. Moon and her teammates returned to Seoul the way they arrived, by first flying to China, then to South Korea, a sequence that transformed what could have been a 120-mile drive, if border crossings were actually allowed, into an overnight journey. Once back home, Moon was barraged with questions from family and friends about her experience in North Korea. She had seen the other side with her own eyes, but the questions she got were not about politics or propaganda. All anyone wanted to know about was the mundane. They first asked if the meals were delicious, Moon said, and so she told them that all the players ate a lot of seasoned chicken. She sounded genuinely impressed when she described the food, raving as well about a cake the players ate to celebrate one of her teammates' birthdays. But when I asked her whether she thought a team of South Koreans playing in North Korea's capital could help improve relations between the countries, or whether the Olympics could build on that soccer game and be some sort of stepping stone to a larger resolution, she paused. I asked again, thinking maybe she hadn't heard me. Moon stared back, her brow furrowed. I am not sure about that, she said finally. As a boy, Oh Sung Chul would sketch the Monkey King, a centuries-old mythological figure whose Chinese name is Sun Wukong on anything. Notebooks, scratch paper, folders, or whatever else he could find, while sitting in the back of his elementary school class. Like so many Asian children, Oh Sung Chul was fascinated by Sun Wukong's slew of magical powers, including the ability to travel 13,000 miles in a single somersault. Oh Sung Chul's love for the Monkey King is what ultimately led to him becoming a North Korean propaganda artist. It did not happen immediately, of course. Oh Sung Chul grew up in Nampo, which is not far from Pyongyang, at the mouth of the Taidong River. In 1995, he joined the military at age 17, and one day, an officer who had seen Oh Sung Chul sketching ordered him to draw a picture that was hanging on the wall. Oh Sung Chul obediently picked up his pencil and drew everything, including the frame the picture was in. The officer was impressed. He asked why Oh Sung Chul had drawn some parts of the picture smaller than they appeared, and Oh Sung Chul explained that it was because of artistic perspective that he was standing farther away, and so he drew the picture as he saw it in his own eye. The officer nodded. Why don't you draw pictures from today on, he told Oh Sung Chul. And so Oh Sung Chul did, using his pens and paints in whatever way he was directed by his commanding officers. Oh Sung Chul was one piece in a staggering machine. Propaganda has always been a critical part of the North Korean regime's efforts to brainwash the population about its country's place in the world, and everything is fair game. Art, music, film, poetry, literature, all of it is used to further the notion that North Korea is omnipotent. When I showed Oh Sung Chul some North Korean paintings I had found on the Internet portraying the largely mediocre North Korean men's soccer team as world-beating heroes, he laughed. In all of the drawings of North Korea, he said, there is not one that does not have the purpose of politics. In North Korea, Oh Sung Chul's quiet dream, the one he never told anyone about, was to make even one piece of art that people would accept on its own worth, its own 
intrinsic beauty. One piece of art that meant only what he intended, not what he was told to make it mean. So at around the age of thirty, he defected, disappearing into a crowd in China and spending several years, yes, years, in the basement of South Korea's consulate in Beijing, before the political machinations required to take a group of North Korean refugees from China, which is a North Korean ally, into Seoul could be worked out. Some of the others with him in the basement could not stand the waiting. Oh, Sung Chul remembered. There was anxiety and despair. There were suicides. He recalled one young man who was withered by the darkness and uncertainty of the basement, and the shuffling and pitter patter of the feet above that never seemed to be moving in their direction. The young man cut himself with a razor blade. Oh Sung Chul said, but Oh Sung Chul thought of freedom in the basement, and when he finally arrived in Seoul, he expected to find splendor. He expected to be welcomed in his new home. The reality was different. Oh Sung Chul now lives in a ramshackle apartment in Yongpyeong, a neighborhood in the northwest corner of Seoul. His tiny space is shunted into a building that itself feels wedged into a steep hill. When I visited, I could sit at the low eating table and touch the tiny refrigerator and the door to the bathroom at the same time. There was no closet. Oh Sung Chul's clothes were hidden behind a curtain. Canvases were tucked into corners, paint and pallets stacked by a single window. Oh Sung Chul has been in South Korea for six years, but it isn't his meager surroundings that bother him. It is everything else. The segregation he feels from natives, the difficulty with getting jobs or making friends, or even just having a conversation on the subway or the bus, the uncomfortable silences—they do not treat me as a human being," Oh Sung Chul said, shrugging. He said it flatly, as if reciting the day's temperature. He said it evenly because there was no disputing it. As he went on detailing the dismissals and the slights, the brush-offs and the snobs. It became clear that the premise behind calling refugees "citeomen" was flawed at its core. Many North Koreans do not feel at home at all. Numerous studies have shown that as many as half of North Korean defectors experience depression after arriving in South Korea, and a 2015 survey by Korea Hana Foundation found that about 20 percent of refugees had had suicidal thoughts in the preceding 12 months, nearly three times the percentage of South Korea's general population. Even more striking is that some aid organizations estimate that as many as 25 percent of North Korean refugees in the South consider going back. Going back? Oh, Sung Chul leaned forward in his chair. They treat me as an inferior, he said softly. It is the darker part of the story. It is what makes the idea of the Koreas walking together at the opening ceremony, holding hands and looking like a family. Feel hollower than Kim Chayul, the local organizing committee executive, would like. The feeling is so widespread that even some North Korean refugees who manage to assimilate in the South are colored by it. Consider this: Wangbo, who was born in North Korea and played hockey for both countries, said she did not think the North-South joint women's hockey team is meaningful because making room for North Korean players on the roster would deny South Korean players the Olympic moment they deserve. I don't think it's the appropriate thing," she told me. 
adding that it won't be for peace or harmony. Wang Bo's sentiment is hardly unique. In 1994, surveys found that about 92% of South Koreans wanted to see unification with the North. By 2007, that had dropped by nearly 30 percentage points, and a government survey in 2011 showed that only 9% of 19- to 29-year-old South Koreans are very interested in a unified Korea. The reasoning is not difficult to understand. South Korea has become the 11th largest economy in the world in spite of a population that is smaller than nations such as Myanmar and Tanzania. There is innovation, technology, and intense competition among citizens for schools and jobs and social advancement. There is pressure and expectation. There is trade. Nothing close to this exists in North Korea. One study by the Asian Institute for Policy Studies even indicated that South Koreans in their 20s do not see North Korea's political system as the only significant difference between them and the North Koreans. Personal values are seen as a divide, too. To many young South Koreans, those from the North are just too different now, too different to be brothers and sisters. And Oh Sung-chul, who fell in love with art by sketching a mythical and powerful monkey, said he was never able to forget it. He looked at the canvases in his apartment, many of which are paintings of basic items such as spoons and straws. Sad subjects, he said. Most mornings, Kim Jin-sung wakes up at 6 a.m. in his 380-square-foot, one-room apartment in northern Seoul. He goes outside and does a set of vigorous calisthenics. Then he has breakfast. On work days, he goes from job to job, working to install or repair sinks. Occasionally, like other defectors, he is asked to speak to South Korean soldiers about what he knows of the North Korean military. At night, he reads. Lately, he has been reading a book about South Korean history. On Sundays, Kim Jin-sung puts on a soccer uniform. He is part of a club called Mirae, which means future. It is a club made up primarily of North Korean refugees and meets rain, shine, snow, or sleet on Sunday afternoons in Gwangmyung, which is a city just on the edge of Seoul. One weekend this past December, I met Kim Jin-sung at the artificial turf field. He and the other players bantered as they put on their shin guards and cleats while a group of wives sat nearby and snacked on nurinji or rice cakes. One of the coaches drew formations on a pad atop a stack of kimchi boxes, which were distributed after the game. As the appointed kickoff time neared, the coach snapped at the players to get ready, shouting, Put on your uniforms and stop smoking cigarettes! Kim Jin-sung stubbed out his butt, sheepishly. The game began. The players were mostly in their twenties or thirties, with a few in their forties. The frosty wind was biting, and the mood was casual. One side played with twelve players for a while, possibly unintentionally, and every twenty minutes or so there was a break. Players took turns serving as referee, splashing water onto a single yellow whistle before passing it on. During one break, Kim Jin-sung told me about leaving the North. In March 2016, he crossed the river into China, waiting for hours in snow and ice before passing through barbed wire fences that North Korean guards had installed at the border. He spent months on trucks and boats, going through Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand before being declared a refugee and arriving in South Korea last May. His son is still in North Korea. 
Kim Chulsong is now 12, according to his father, and the boy continues to live with his grandparents. What did your son say when you told him you were leaving? I asked. Kim Jinsung looked away. He never found the words to tell his child he was abandoning him. My son would have been shocked if I told him that I would go to South Korea, he whispered. If someone says that he went to South Korea, they treat him as a traitor. Kim Jin-sung and his son have not spoken in nearly two years. But a few days before Kim Jin-sung and I met a border broker, someone who works as a trafficker between North Korea, China, and South Korea, stopped Kim Jin-sung and gave him an envelope. It was from North Korea. Kim Chul-sung had sent some pictures to his father. Sitting alone in his apartment, Kim Jin-sung said he wept as he stared at the photos of his boy. Kim Jin-sung is convinced he will see his son again someday. When the Koreas are unified, he told me, he and Kim Chul-sung will play soccer together. They will try to be a family again. Mirei, it said on his chest. The future. Kim Jin-sung bowed. Then he turned and jogged back onto the field. Short and thin, with skin that looked stretched tight over his bones, he was one of the few players not wearing anything under his short-sleeved blue jersey. He ran as if the gusts were pushing him. When the ball came near, he started toward it with quick, sharp steps. The play would shift, and he would make another short sprint in a different direction. Occasionally, he leapt in the air and kicked out, only to land and resume bouncing around, bobbing in a way that was somewhere between restless and endearingly spastic. The game lasted for hours. I never once saw him stand still. Additional reporting was contributed by Max Kim. Fantastic. Such a great reported story by Sam. Now joining us now from the Winter Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea, is ESPN senior writer Sam Borden calling us 14 hours into the future. Sam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So just to get uh, started, Sam, you tell one of the first stories you tell in your piece of uh, Kim's uh, Jin Sung and how he went from almost like as pampered as they can be, a pampered soldier in North Korea living in the Supreme Leader's home to a bootlegging criminal. And so now his crimes were clearly for the love of his family and his wife, but is this sort of pervasive throughout North Korea that, that you see, like how quick to desperation on the conditions are people? Meaning if someone who lived and breathed the respect of the Supreme Leader was now committing crimes against the government in almost in a very quick fashion, well, I think, like you said, there's definitely a very thin line in North Korea between making it and total desperation. Um, you know, the people that are not necessarily in the upper, upper, upper tier uh, in terms of the class structure there, um, and which in a lot of cases is people who live outside of Pyongyang, um, they're often struggling for money. I mean, you know, money, food, basic necessities. Um, those are the kinds of things that are real question marks in a day-to-day life for just about everybody. And so, yeah, I mean, that kind of behavior 
trying to find money wherever you can. Obviously, his wife was sick. Um, you know, there was uh, a, a lot of pressure placed on him, and as there is on you know the vast majority of North Koreans to do whatever is possible to make it through the day. And I think that in this circumstance, it's not atypical. And sadly, the the end result of being sent to prison is not atypical either. Now, in your reporting, there appears to be just um, in North Korea, there appears to be like a reverence, obviously, in how they view people as traitors who go to South Korea. There appears to be a reverence for the North. But is that is are you able to discern the difference between true reverence and fear or is it just a blend that you really can't tell the difference in? I would say I'm not sure that it's either necessarily. I think, you know, it's it's the result of what one of the refugees described as brainwashing. And I think that that is, you know, a a realistic descriptor. Mm -hmm. I think the propaganda is significant. Um, You know, we had the ability to interview a propaganda artist, which was really fascinating just to sort of understand the degree to which the propaganda arm of the government uh, extends, you know, it's in everything. It's in art, it's in um, film, it's in music, um, culture of all kinds, and even in sport. Um, and so I think that in a lot of cases, the, the, the reverence, as you say, is just, it's baked in because it's the only thing that the majority of North Koreans have ever known. You know, their their exposure to other cultures is necessarily restricted. I mean, even the contingent of North Koreans that's uh, at the Olympics right now in South Korea have their movements very closely monitored, have their ability to go and experience any of the culture in South Korea extremely limited. And so I think that, you know, the the premise behind that kind of perpetual propaganda is that the people will only know one thing, and that one thing is North Korea uh, and the and that which they have been told the government offers them. And so I think, you know, that that's where the sort of reverence comes from. And also the feeling of anybody who leaves is a traitor, uh, you know, that sort of strong emotion that comes from the idea that, you know, growing up uh, as they're in school and as they're going about their daily lives, all they learn is that this is the only place in the world for them to be. I find it interesting when you mentioned uh, the artists and the propaganda and how, you know, as you mentioned your piece, the, the, the paintings of the North Korean soccer team dominating, where here you have a, a country even within their small isolated bubble that they still produce with technology, you know, these propaganda videos or movies, like there are things where like, you know, they show the rockets going up, but yet you really can't fake that. So they have to resort to, uh, we're just going to tell you the soccer team's fantastic, and no, we don't have any video or pictures of it, so we're going to have someone draw something. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, you know, that's not necessarily like the the main apparatus of the propaganda machine for sure, but it's just, I think it's emblematic of the, the depth to which that program goes. Obviously, as you said, you know, the military uh, and the sort of uh, strength and reach of the nuclear arsenal is the main piece of what um, the Kim government looks at as the best emblem of their world power and world dominance. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it is is really in place to just 
make clear to North Korean citizens that, you know, everything you could possibly have in the world is here and everything you could possibly want from the world is here. And, you know, there's no need to to know or understand anything more outside of the, you know, the borders of this country. And so, you know, the the, nu- the nuclear stuff sort of feeds one element of that and then everything else, I think, feeds the rest of it. Now you, do- you talk about how the Olympics and Olympic spirit, you know, that should be viewed as some sort of medicine for part of this conflict. But in your experience now that you're you're there and the extensive reporting you did earlier, do you find that this is more PR spin by the powers that be than actual reality? You know, it's hard to say whether whether it's PR or spin. I mean, I think that there's a a understandable wariness from South Koreans and outsider, you know, Westerners as to what is the sort of end game or the the level of authenticity from the North Koreans when it comes to what they're doing. I mean, I think we have seen instances in the past, even in the recent past, where there have been moments or periods of of you know, um, I guess what you what they've been called, you know, sort of like a, a charm offensive, mm-hmm. um, like a, a softening, I guess, of the rhetoric from North Korea. I mean, there was an Asian Games a couple of years ago where uh, a similar kind of um, you know softening existed, and then what happened shortly after that Asian Games? Well, the you know missile tests resume and. Kim Jong Un um, increased the increased the sort of scope of their missile program, and you know all of the goodwill that had been built up was you know pretty summarily um, knocked down. And so I think that there is understandably uh, a thinking that this is going to be the same sort of thing that you know Kim Jong Un uh, has made this effort to be involved in the um, Pyeongchang Olympics because. He knows that the world is watching, that everybody's focused on the Olympics for this, you know, period of a month or so. And he's going to use that as an opportunity to try to separate South Korea from the United States, um, you know, in this sort of traditionally strong alliance that they have as a way to, you know, make uh, a play to the rest of the world that, hey, look, you know, we are getting along with South Korea. The sanctions that have made it, you know, uh, so difficult and have like crippled the economy in North Korea really shouldn't be as strong as they are. And ultimately, you know, his sort of authenticity or the genuine nature of what he's doing is not there. At the same time, there are a lot of people who are very optimistic about, you know, reunification someday and look at this and say, like, hey, look, he's making a step. And, you know, this is this is how progress begins. And so I think historically, it's not unreasonable to look at it and say, well, this is not necessarily going to have that strong an outcome. But obviously, if you're an optimist, then you would look at this and say, look, you know, Kim Jong-un's sister watched a hockey game in uh, South Korea a couple of nights ago and invited uh, President Moon of South Korea to visit Pyongyang, which is, you know, uh, fairly, fairly unusual and unprecedented. So mm-hmm. that's progress. Um, I think it's really just sort of whatever prism you want to look at the you know scope of events through. Now, you also tell the story of uh, Huang Bo Young, who used uh, a woman who used hockey to make the difficult transition from North Korea to refugee to South Korea, it should be eventually became like the face of the South Korean national team. But this seems to be her story is a little bit of an anomaly because the tradition of being labeled as someone who's from the North uh, isn't that easy to make. And yeah, exactly. I think you, you, you nailed it with that word anomaly. Uh, and, And the funny thing is, is, you know, my impression my, my, I think, incorrect impression and sort of my assumption, I guess, was that 
the vast majority of people were like her or would be like her in that they'd be accepted. The South Koreans would look at a North Korean refugee and say like, oh my gosh, what have you gone through? We're so happy to have you here. Let us help you, you know, assimilate into society. I just sort of assumed that would be the case, you know? Right. Uh, and as it turned out, that was completely wrong uh, and misguided. And I think that if I had to pick the element of reporting this story that surprised me the most, it was that. It was that the North Korean refugees who make it to South Korea do not necessarily find the you know, wonderful life that they would have imagined. Um, and then in many cases, they're depressed. In many cases, they're, um, I don't know if homesick is the right word, but I mean, they, they are regretful about maybe the decision that they made because their life in South Korea is so difficult. And I think that is a fairly remarkable reality to consider when you think about the life that they left behind. I think it's, I, I also found that to be such a fascinating part of your piece, including that television show, Now My Way to Meet You, where it seems it was a little bit to what my initial impression of South Korea was. It seems a little bit beneath, in a way, South Korea's welcoming mantra, but it's clearly very successful. And I don't know, did you did you feel that this was more, the success of that show was more like a childhood fascination of these adults that are, are all these tales that we grew up with about the North, are they true? And then finding them out through this difficult transition. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think there's an element of that. And I think there's an element of, you know, for, for, for lack of a better word, sex appeal. You know what I mean? I think that the vast majority of people that are on that show are, you know, young, female, attractive um, uh, women that are, you know, going through or, or uh, experiencing sort of the, the, the glamours and, and um, you know, availabilities of South Korean life when it comes to fashion or makeup or whatever else. And so in some ways they've become this, you know, um, glamorized version of what the refugee is. And I think my experience, at least in the reporting, was that obviously from <laughs> for many of the men who come over, yes. the experience is very different. You know, um, I think it's not unreasonable to say that there is a fascination um, with North Korean women in South Korea. We saw that not only in those shows, but also in the cheerleaders that have been here, the North Korean cheerleaders. I mean, they they are frequently, you know, sort of lionized in the South Korean press as, you know, uh, these beauties, you know, Kim Jong-un's beauties. And in reality, I mean, they're this sort of like, it's a little bit disturbing. You know, there are several hundred women that are sort of groomed and handpicked and, um, you know, in North Korea to serve as a, as a very sexy arm of the propaganda machine. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways it's disturbing, but, the, you know, the reception that they receive in South Korea and elsewhere in Asia is often as this, like, wonderful, um, you know, wonderful novelty. And I think that that probably speaks to the same sentiment as that reality, those reality TV shows. As in one of the other stories you tell of, as we mentioned earlier, a little bit about the artist, uh, his name, uh, Oh Sung Chol, how he feels like he had a very powerful quote about how he isn't viewed as an equal when he said, they don't treat me like a human being. Like, did you find, yeah. do you find that was more the norm than, what is displayed through television and other propaganda? I think so. I mean, I, I think honestly, part of it is that, and maybe this, you know, is kind of where your your opinion or where your assumption came from as well, is that I think in general, as Westerners, you know, we experience North Korea in, in um, one of two ways. Either 
we experience it as this sort of like, you know, mysterious place uh, that has these sort of, you know, random uh, oddball stories, you know, Dennis Rodman or, you know, um, the great leader played a round of golf and had 37, you know, holes in one or whatever it was, you know, and ha 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 ha, you know, what a weird place. So we kind of experience it that way, or we experience, you know, some of the journalism that's been done that sort of pulls back the curtain. Okay. It's, it's uh, incredibly poverty stricken or, you know, the prisons are, are, uh, you know, like death camps, you know, like those, those kinds of things I think we do experience, you know, whether it's through television or newspaper or, you know, um, investigative reporting. I think the part that we don't experience or, or know much about, and I think, which is where my assumption, my wrong assumption came from was that, what happens once they leave, what happens once they get to wherever they're going. And so, you know, I think for me to hear from Osung Chol that not only are they not well received, but they're literally shunted aside. I mean, the, the apartment that we visited him in was in one of these sort of North Korean, you know, refugee type areas on the outskirts of Seoul, which is where, you know, very often the refugees and other immigrants end up. And so, you know, they're essentially living in these like ghettos that are way away from the center of the city. I mean, it was like an hour and a half from where, you know, I was in the city center to get out to where he lives. And I think, you know, that probably as much as anything contributes to the overarching feel that we are not really a part of this society. Right. Like how the whole, like the immigration push in like the American dream at the turn of the 20th century of land of opportunity streets paved with gold. That is just a myth. A hundred percent. I think that that is exactly what they imagine and then not at all what they find. And so for those who defected speaking to what you earlier said about almost a brainwashing, you get the feeling it's similar. What you, uh, what you read about someone who like some of the stories, uh, you know, Leah Remini tells with her, her documentaries on Scientology where it's a break. It's not like, okay, well, you're there now. It's like, you're dead to us. Like you're like you've in it, in a way, like it seems that and you also tell the story uh, when you, uh, the hockey players greeting their former teammate and like, I'm not even going to shake your hand because you're a traitor. The interesting thing about that, I think is that it, it kind of cuts two ways. Yes. There is no doubt that, you know, there's real concern about, what will happen to my family if I leave that it's left behind, if I'm, you know, identified as a, as a defector and, you know, mm-hmm. that's how seriously it's taken. But then at the same point, I think nowadays I've been told that there also is almost a reverse of that, that there are some, I think as many as a quarter of refugees consider going back at some point, And there is a small percentage that actually do. And those people are often treated as heroes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's almost, they're almost held up as an example of look, Believe the propaganda. This person here, they left. And what did they do? They came back. You know what I mean? And so in some ways, they're almost rewarded for having left and then returned, which seems a little bit counterintuitive. But yes. at the same time, you can, you can also see how, you know, the, the, the Kim government is not, are not, it's not foolish. They're not, you know, ignorant of the idea that you know, there, it is easier to get movies into the country. It is easier to get, you know, television shows into the country than it used to be. So they are, you know, North Koreans are getting slightly more exposure to, you know, culture outside of North Korea than they used mm-hmm. to. So the idea that somebody would then leave and return 
in some ways is the greatest example that the Kims could offer to other North Koreans that, hey, what we are telling you, you should believe. Because, look, this guy left and came back anyway. So outside of outside of the leaders and like what they're trying to do to control the situations in North and South Korea, both sides, do you feel like is this everything we're talking about there? Is this something that consumes like the average citizens on both sides or or not? Or like, like they're constantly thinking about because you also mentioned how, you know, if you're in Seoul, you've been living under the range of just hundreds of um, artillery guns for 50 years. So it's sort of yeah, like, eh, exactly. like where, you know, your point of uh, missile sirens are like New York city police. That was a great example. Or like New York city police sirens. You may hear them at first, but you quickly learn to ignore them. Yeah, exactly. No. I, and I think that again, for me, that was enlightening and it made a lot of sense once I sort of stopped to think about it. But you know, I was there, I was in Seoul during one of these missile tests and I was, you know, like, okay, you know, what does this mean? What's happening? What's going on? You know, like, where's the where's the panic? And was sort of greeted with, like, you know, blank stares. And I think that um, the reality is, is that, no, you know, look, we all live our lives however we're, <laughs> however we best are able to get through the days, you know what I mean? And I think that, obviously, South Koreans cannot, uh, do not and cannot walk around 24 hours a day worried about what's going to happen um, with the neighbors to the north. Um, so, no, I don't think that, you know, um, war or unification is necessarily something that's like a regular subject in the minds of Koreans. But at the same time, I think that it's also impossible to ignore completely. And obviously, whenever there's a big event like this, where, you know, every South Korean knows that the eyes of the world, you know, are looking at um, you know, Seoul and Pyongyang and this part of uh, this part of the globe for the next couple of weeks, it is an issue that perpetually arises. And so I think that, you know, while it's not necessarily a day to day occurrence in times like these, it's impossible not to be, uh, you know, a little bit consumed with what is the dynamic and how is this particular event uh, affecting it? So with all this and, and you did a great um, follow up, towards some of these points and others uh, with your piece on the opening ceremonies, kind of bring this all together. But uh, as, as the long-term crisis on the Korean peninsula, like you mentioned earlier, like which prism, but how, how would you see in reality, the, um, uh, the legacy of these games, like, like, you know, catalyst for change versus eventually forgotten footnote. You know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, you know, I'm far from an expert, but I think, you know, any even a, even a cursory reading would say that it, it sort of depends on what you want to believe is significant progress. You know what I mean? Like if 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 the if if unification is sort of what you imagine to be the end game, then I, my reporting and I think just, you know, sort of a general analysis would say that it's difficult to see that happening anytime soon. I think the country's between, um, you know, the last time there was an Olympics here in 88 and now have grown apart dramatically. There's mm -hmm. no question that South Korea has gone on to become, you know, a first world country, a uh, burgeoning economy, one of the one of the most important countries in the world in a lot of ways. Yep. Whereas North Korea, you know, by the description of people that have been there, 
is a country that is still very much stuck in the 1990s, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. So it's hard to imagine those, uh, even beyond the the idea of a dictatorship and a democracy, you know, (laughs) joining forces, just from a simple sort of societal, you know, perspective, it's hard to imagine that happening. But if the end game in your mind is, you know, peace um, and maybe a, a, a calming of the nuclear rhetoric, you know, could this, could that change in in the near future? I, I, I'm an optimist, so I like to think so. And I think that it's possible that these games and the interactions that are happening because of them could play a role in, you know, starting that, you know, <laughs> starting the ball rolling in that direction. But at the same time, there was a lot of goodwill um, around the 88 Olympics. There was, you know, sort of a, a thawing at that time. And we're still, you know, some 30 years later, still, talking about the same kinds of issues. So I really think it's it's difficult to say for sure that the sports are going to have any kind of considerable impact. But at the same time, I think if you're optimistic, you want to look for whatever, whatever straws you can find to grasp at. And this Olympics is definitely offering some of those. Well, we'll have to – I'm anxious to see uh, if anything else comes out of this. But, Sam, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to uh, talk about it, and I really appreciate you guys featuring the story. And you can read Sam Borden's reports from Pyeongchang throughout the Winter Games on ESPN.com. Okay, so stay warm, or as warm as you can out there. All right, thanks very much. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.